We are going to interrupt our series uh, going through the letter of Philippians for uh, just a chance to jump back into our year-long focus on reflecting God's glory. And so let me begin um, our time together in the Word this morning by talking a little bit about lookalikes. You know, when someone has an uncanny resemblance to somebody else, we say they're lookalikes, you know. They, they look the same. They're, they're twins, you know. And some of these lookalikes are interesting. This is Yasser Arafat and Ringo Starr. You didn't know they were twins, did you? That's interesting. Some of them are fascinating. Uh, the Statue of Liberty and the King of Rock and Roll bear a striking resemblance. Now, some of these are funny, too. This is the Dalai Lama and a llama named Dolly. They look um, alike, I think. Some are creepy. This is Eddie Van Halen and the crazy cat lady from The Simpsons. And a very unfortunate picture, I think, for Eddie Van Halen. Now, some lookalikes are serious, A few years ago, the lady on the left, Amanda Sylvester, was arrested and charged with armed robbery in Omaha, Nebraska, and she spent six days in jail before they found out it was really Casey, the lady on the left, who had committed the crime. Some lookalikes are irritating, just really annoying. Um... People come up to me on the streets all the time, and it's it's embarrassing. We, uh, you can take that down now. Thank you. (laughs) I just needed one cheap laugh. I didn't need six years of stuff to come back on me on that. We, uh, we said a long time ago, remember back on January 2nd, we said that we're going to spend this year really digging into what it means to reflect the glory of God. We said that we are convinced we are called to something so much bigger than just this church at Golf Course Road. We are called to something so much higher, something so much greater than our own individual needs or even our congregational wishes and desires. We are called by God to reflect God's glory. And what does that mean? What does it mean to reflect God's glory? And what we're kind of landing on is the fact that God wants us to look like Him. We need to be lookalikes with our Father in heaven. We need to think more like God. We need to act more like God and talk more like God. We need to see the world and to see the people in it the same way God does. We need to reflect the glory of God as He has revealed it to us. And He has revealed to us His glory. We know very well who our God is and what God is doing and how He's doing it and why. In Exodus chapter 6, God promises, I am going to deliver my people. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord and I'm going to rescue you from the yoke of the Egyptians. I'm going to free you from slavery and bondage. And he says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. At the beginning of Exodus 7, he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. At the end of chapter 7, by this you will know that I am the Lord. 
At the end of chapter 8, when he's talking about the plague of flies, the Lord says, the Egyptians are going to suffer with the flies, but you're not. And that way you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Same thing with the locusts at the beginning of chapter 10. This is so you may know, he says, that I am the Lord. In Exodus chapter 14, after God has rescued or I'm sorry, as he's about to, um, to enact the last plague, he says in verse 4, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Later on, verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So, After they're rescued from slavery, after they're delivered through the Red Sea, the people begin to grumble. They begin to complain because there's not a chicken express in the desert, and they're hungry. And God says, I'm going to give you meat in the evening. I'm going to give you bread in the morning. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to fill you up with food. He says, I've heard the grumbling. I'll fill you with bread. You will know then that I am the Lord your God. In Exodus 29, God is describing the building of the tabernacle. I want you to build me a tent, God says, because I want to live with you. And he says, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God. Over and over and over again, God tells his people, you will know me. You will know my glory. You will know that I love you. You will know the Lord. And then the golden calf thing happens in Exodus 32. And God's anger is stirred. And he destroys 3,000 of his people and he strikes the rest of them with an awful plague Moses is in distress, obviously. He goes up on the mountain to atone for the people. Please, Lord, forgive the people of their sins. And in chapter chapter 33, God promises to forgive his people. He promises to provide for his people. And he promises to accompany his people to the promised land. And then Moses, out of boldness or desperation, this is either courage or it's a last resort. It's hard to tell. But Moses says in verse 13, teach me your ways so I may know you. Teach me your ways so I may know you. Verse 18, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Everything God has said, everything God has done, from the very first day he ever met Moses at that burning bush, it's all been leading to this one point in time. This is the single most important statement about God in the whole Bible. This is it. This is God's description of himself. This is God's self-revelation. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the holy name of God. This is the magnificent glory of God. God personally revealed by God himself, and it drove Moses to his knees. This drove Moses to the ground in reverent worship and awe. And this revelation of God's glory, this description of who God is, it encouraged Moses. It gave him strength. It gave Moses confidence in his relationship with God. These holy words changed Moses. And they'll change you. They'll change us. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. We're going to focus on that little phrase this morning, abounding in love. It's two Hebrew words, rob chesed. You got to get that in there at the beginning, right? Rob chesed. So, rob is just a Hebrew word for great or a lot of or big or much, okay? That's rob. It just means there's a lot of this. And then chesed. Chesed is a, I mean, it might be the most beautiful, rich, deep word in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Chesed means love, but it means so much more than that. It means an abiding love, a faithful love. It also means like kindness and loyalty and mercy and compassion. In the NIV, this chesed word is just translated love. Your Bible may say something like loving goodness or loving kindness, but whatever it is, there's not just one English word that matches chesed. We've got to have a whole bunch of them to really get to what chesed means. Uh, there's an Old Testament scholar, a lot of you know, uh, in the churches of Christ named Harold Shank. Here's what he says about this word chesed. He says, when we uncover the meaning and the implications of this word for steadfast love, we have probed near to the core of God's heart and why he seeks relationship with us. I think this little phrase abounding in love and faithfulness. I think it's the most, Im most important part of this most important description of who God is. You know, just like the crucifixion is nothing without the resurrection, none of the other attributes of God's character in this description mean anything without this abounding in love. Abounding in love. Rob chesed. And it means God loves you. God loves us. God loves you. From before the beginning of time, throughout all the rest of eternity, God loves you. And that is so basic, and it is so fundamental and foundational, it can almost go unstated, but it doesn't. 
The writers of the Bible state it and state it and state it over and over again. God is love. God loves you. God loves the world. God loves us. God is love. God loves you. It's the broken record of the Bible, but it sings like a symphony to our souls. God loves me. The one thing you need the most, the Bible is unmistakably clear in letting us know. It's true. God loves you. 1 John chapter 4, I think, really sums it up very well. Like, like the whole thing. Everything we need to know about God's love outside of Exodus 34 is found in 1 John 4. Stephen read it to us from the table. Number one, God is the source of love, right? Verse seven, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Love comes from God. God shares his own love. He gives of his own love. And then God is the very definition of love. Verse eight, whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. God is love. His character is love. His personality is love. Love is God's DNA. Love is who God is. And then God is the revelation of love. This is love. Verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We know what love is, what love really is, Because of what God did and what God does, we understand love. We know love. This is love. God is love. God is abounding in love. God has more love than Elon Musk has money. God has more love than Disney has movies. God has more love than James Van Stavern has Hawaiian shirts. Can I get an amen on that? If you look up love in the dictionary, it's got God's picture right beside it. It doesn't, but it should, right? We know this. Everything we know about love and everything we don't yet know about love begins and ends with our God. There's nothing we can say about God. There's nothing we can say about his character. There's nothing we can say about his plans for his people without first considering his abundant love. Love is who God is. And God's love is unrelenting. It never quits. It never slows down. It never gives up. God's love overcomes every obstacle. It breaks down every wall. It pursues us. It chases us. God's love is active. And it works around the clock. And it's what moves God. His love is what compels him. It's the driving force behind every single thing that God does. God is love. The Lord, the Lord, abounding in love. Now, I've said a lot of words about love. And there are more words to be said about the love of God. But listen, listen. The abounding love of our God is never expressed to his people as merely lip service. God's love is so much more than just words. God's love is never, ever just about talk. God's abundant love, God's faithful love is shown and proven by his actions. We don't ever doubt God's love because his actions with us are so consistent and so true. 
and so loving. I know my dad loves me. Not because he tells me he loves me, but because of the way he acts towards me. My dad loves me. My dad sold TVs and stereos at Sears at the mall in Mesquite, Texas for 30 years to provide for my family everything we need. And he would crawl in to the house after a particularly tough day at the mall and then he would shoot baskets with me out in the driveway until it was too dark to see. My dad never missed a single one of my junior high and high school football games and tennis matches. Not one, ever. And he always told me how good I had done, even when we all knew I hadn't. My dad rescued me one night in a sleet storm at 1130 at night at the Syene Road exit off LBJ Freeway when I had run out of gas. He drove to Ardmore, Oklahoma at 2.30 in the morning when I had run out of gas. No, the car had broken down. The alternator went out on I-35. My dad stood up for me several times with the man who lived across the street. My dad gave us the money we needed the first couple of years of our marriage. My dad was there for the births of all three of our daughters and their baptisms. My dad taught me how to drive. He taught me how to change the oil and the spark plugs. He taught me how to throw a spiral. My dad baptized me. And he had tears in his eyes when he told me that day how proud he was of me and that he loved me. I know my dad loves me, not because of his words, but because of his consistent and true and loving actions. Our God delivers his people from slavery. Our God crushes the enemies of his people. Our God provides for his people in the desert, and he says, then you will know me. You will know my love at that point. You'll know who I am. You'll know how much I love you. Do the people in here know how much you love them? What about the person sitting right next to you right now? Does that person know how much you love him or how much you love her? I'm just asking. Is there anybody in here who knows how much you love them because of the loving actions you've done toward them or for them? Is there anybody out there who knows how much you love them because of the way you act toward them? Dr. A.B. Bruce writes this, loving thoughts never revealed are not loving thoughts at all. It is essential to the being of love that it manifests itself. Love unrevealed is love unreal. See, reflecting God's glory is not just telling people about his great love. It is showing that great love to people in real acts of loving kindness. 
It means rescuing people. It means standing up for people, defending people, sacrificing and serving other people. It's taking the love we read about in the Bible, this this abundant love that all of us receive from God. It is taking that love and trying to figure out how to manifest it, how to demonstrate it. Remember we talked about this last Sunday. This is working out your salvation, right? Making it real. How to take the love that we receive from God and put it into real, practical, concrete, everyday actions. Why? So people will know God. So people will understand God. So they will experience the glory of God. One of the easiest and uh, more troubling ways to do this is to look at a passage about love and then to insert your own name where it says love. That, that makes it real. So I automatically think about 1 Corinthians 13. It's, it's, it's an easy one, right? But I look at 1 Corinthians 13 and I think, okay, how do I make this real? How do I apply this? How do I demonstrate it? How do I work it out? Verse 4, love is patient. Alan is patient with his brothers and sisters in his church family. Love is kind. Alan is kind to people who don't like me. Love does not envy other people's gifts. Love doesn't boast in the gifts I have. Love is not proud of anything I've accomplished recognizing that it's all from God and we're all doing this thing together. Verse 5, Alan is not rude to anyone, no matter what. See how hard this is? Love seeks the good of others. Love looks out for your interests, not mine. It is impossible for you to make me angry. When I'm wronged, I forget about it. Are you reading this along with me? This is so hard. Verse 7, I always protect you. I always trust you. I always stay positive. And I never give up and quit. Never. I don't ever quit on you. I don't ever quit on this church. I don't ever quit on this city. I don't ever quit on this world God created. Church, we are called by our God to look like our God, to reflect his glory, to reflect his abundant love in this world. If you go back to 1 John again, it's, it's very clear the expectations for children of God. Let us love one another, verse 7, for love comes from God. Dear friends, since God so loved us, verse 11, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, God's love is made complete among us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God created us out of his love. He created you out of his love. He provides for you and he protects you. He wipes away your tears. He lifts you up when you're fallen. 
He heals your scars. He, he ministers to your wounds. Because of his abounding love, our God carries us through our trials and through our troubles. And he leads us out of despair. God loves you. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We are God's kids. And that speaks to me. Because I know how I feel about my kids. When God creates me out of his love and he says, I'm going to call you my child and I want you to call me your father. That speaks to me. Because I know how much I love my girls. I would do anything for my girls. I would do whatever needs to be done. I would go wherever I need to go to make sure that my girls are protected and provided for. I would move heaven and earth to make sure they have every single thing they need physically, spiritually, financially, emotionally. You know this, right, parents? I would do anything to make sure my kids are set up to be successful and happy and in a position to enjoy everything there is to life on this planet in Jesus Christ. That's what I want. And I'll do whatever it takes to make that happen for my girls. I love my girls. I want to be with my girls. I want to be in the same room with my girls. I want my girls to grow closer to me and me to grow closer to them. And I want us to love each other more. And I want us to always be together. My daughters, I love my daughters. And Jesus says, if you, Alan, with all your sins and your shortcomings, if you, with all of your mistakes and all of your issues, if you know how to love your children, how much more your Father in heaven? How much more? That speaks to me. That tells me how much God loves me. It's his loving actions, right? We all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And when we look at this broken world with all of its pain and suffering, when we experience some of that pain and suffering, it's tempting to sometimes doubt the love of God. Where is God when I lose my job? Where is the love of God when my child dies? How can God love me when my parents abuse me? How can God love me when my own husband divorced me? How can God love me when I am so full of sin? I'm dying of cancer, and sometimes it feels like the love of God is just a meaningless song or an empty Bible verse. And that's why God gave us his son, Jesus came to this earth, and in essence, he said, I am God. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so, Jesus' love shows us God's love. Jesus' forgiveness shows us God's forgiveness. Jesus' 
Mercy shows us God's mercy. Jesus' grace and patience shows us the grace and the patience of God. And Jesus' death on the cross shows us very clearly the limitless nature of our God's abounding love. You can stand beside your husband's casket and doubt the love of God. You can doubt the love of God in the cancer ward or in the unemployment line. But you cannot doubt the love of God when you're kneeling at the foot of the cross. That's why he came. He loves you that much. He loves me that much. And there's nothing our God does that is not compelled by that love. There's nothing our God allows to happen to you that's not motivated by his deep love for you and his desire to live with you right now, today, and forever. Now, church, we we live in very interesting days. We do live in interesting times. Have you noticed? 120 years ago, scientists and philosophers told us that things were getting a whole lot better. They told us that science and technology and education were going to solve all of the world's problems. In just a few short decades, science, technology, and education would lead to world peace. City and state police forces would be obsolete because there wouldn't be any more crime. There would be no need for armies because there weren't going to be any more wars. Science, technology, and education was going to fix everything. That was 120 years ago. And then there were two horribly bloody and brutal world wars. And the countless numbers of unceasing wars ever since. Nuclear reactors are melting down in Tokyo and Putin's got his finger on a nuclear button in Moscow this morning. 30% of the world's wheat and oil comes from Ukraine and Russia, which means we're heading for a global famine. Wildfires, drought, All the water is disappearing. A worldwide pandemic killed millions of people around this world, and we still don't have a handle on the supply chains and the economies that were destroyed as we divided over the solutions. There are mass shootings in this country every other day. Racism and nationalism and tribalism that's destroying the democratic foundations of the country we live in. And I'm hearing everywhere and I'm reading everywhere that people are starting to lose their faith in science, technology, and education. Breaking news, science, technology, and education cannot fix what's wrong with this world. Can I get an amen? It's not going to do it. Science, technology, and education are not enough because the world is too big and the people in it are way too broken to be fixed by science or technology or education or the government or money or power. You fill in the blank. The only thing that will make right everything that is so wrong is the abounding love of God. Love. Love first. Love always. Love, period. Love, love, love. Receiving the love of God and then sharing the love of God with the world. And when I mean the world, I mean starting right now today in our world. Right here, 
Why? So the whole world will know there is a God and he is Lord. Amen? Now is the time, church. Today is the day to remind each other and to declare to the world, now is the time to preach it and teach it. Now is the time to sing it and shout it that our hope is built on nothing less than the abounding, abundant, never ceasing, always faithful love of our God. Stand with me, church. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed by your gracious love, your abounding love. Thank you, God. Father, you have shown your love to us in many ways. All of us in this room, in the name of Jesus, we know that you love us and you have shown your love to us. We know you are the Lord because of your loving actions toward us. And Father, right now, we just want to lift up our hearts to you and we just want to say thank you. Father, there, there's something we're thinking about right now. There, there's a very specific thing, a way that you have blessed us, a way you have provided for us, a way you have rescued us, God. And we want to lift that up to you right now in thanksgiving, God. Would you please listen to our hearts as we give you thanks for your love for us. And Father, in the name of Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we ask you today to help us more openly and more honestly receive your love, to allow your love to penetrate our, our cold, hard hearts, and to change us. Ah, oh, we need to be changed. God, change us by your love, and give us the courage, God, give us the boldness to reflect your love to every single person you put in front of us. And may your name be given glory today, forever and ever. And the whole church says,